I could not help feeling that they were evil things, mountains of madness whose farther slopes looked out over some accursed ultimate abyss, that seething, half-luminous cloud background held ineffable suggestions of a vague, ethereal beyondness far more than terrestrially spatial, and gave appalling reminders of the utter remoteness, separateness, desolation, and eon-long death of this untrodden and unfathomed austral world. Reminds me of North Carolina. Oh, except they have more fried chicken. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to Outside of a Dog, the strange, indescribable, horrifying shape next to me in the ancient scrolls bears the name of Christian Schneider. And the mad Arab warned us of that cyclopean structure that is erected right next to me. It's called Jonas Hock. For a second there, I thought you were going to refer to me as the mad Arab because I have a black beard, but that would have been in very poor taste of you. So And incredibly racist, which brings us <laughs> to the author we read today, H.P. Lovecraft. I have never actually read any H.P. Lovecraft, but recently I read a summary of all his works on Tumblr, which basically said, Technology is scary, so are old things, and minorities! Well, that is not entirely uh, without base, but... Let's... And we're all about that base. I'm going to cut that out. We read... One of the longer pieces of writing by Lovecraft at the Mountains of Madness. Jonas, it's the first piece of writing by Lovecraft that you've ever read. So Yes, I know nothing about Lovecraft, basically. Very little about horror literature or even horror cinema. So, the Mountains of Madness was my first foray into the Lovecraft canon. It is about a group of explorers who go to the Antarctic, you know, just for some routine exploring, drilling, taking some samples of the sediment, etc., etc. But then they discover strange footprints in rock that is much, much too old to be from a time where anything that had feet existed. Indeed, they soon find an underground cavern where some of these mysterious creatures that might have left these footprints still are. But the little expedition force that goes to examine this cave is lost in a violent massacre. The book is actually the account of one of the surviving members of the rest of the party who wants to discourage further exploration of that region, even though they find amazing things, not just these strange creatures, but also the highest mountains on earth, higher than the Himalayas, the very mountains of madness of the book's title. But he says that the things that they saw there are too terrible for further exploration to go on, and that the things that slumber there should never be discovered by humans. Because indeed, the mountains of madness and the ancient primordial city that they find atop these mountains were built not by humans, but by the great old ones, extraterrestrial beings later worshipped by humans as gods, who came from the stars and built all the life on earth, really. But they were then superseded by slave beings that they had created to serve them. And these beings are still alive in the deep of the mountains of madness. And if they are disturbed, horror will wash over the earth. Ooh. Very atmospheric description. The history of publication is a bit more prosaic. The story was written in 1931, but was rejected by the editor of Lovecraft's usual publication means, the pulp magazine Weird Tales, because it was 
considered to be too long. Only in 1936 was the entire novella serialized and published in another pulp magazine, Astonishing Stories. And that is actually not that big a surprise. Lovecraft's entire oeuvre is mainly short stories and shorter pieces of writing. At the Mountains of Madness is one of the longer ones, and it's still not a novel. It's a novella, basically. An indication of how short it really is might be that I comfortably finished it within a week. And that is saying something. And also, if we're being honest, not that much happens in it. I go to the Antarctic, find strange stuff, go up to the mountains, find out about this ancient civilization, find out what killed it, and run away. The end. The main part of the narration, the account of William Dyer, the surviving member of the expedition, is basically mainly a description. It's a description of the expedition, the exploration, kind of a travel journal, what they found, and how they made it out. And the parts that aren't description are ominous warnings. Ominous warnings about what will happen if another expedition makes its way there. And they are repeated throughout the entire thing. That really sets up a nice sense of dread right from the beginning. He writes that he didn't want to disclose what he saw there, but that he's forced to do so now because he wants to prevent further missions. So right from the beginning, you know, hang on, something isn't quite right with this expedition. And then the sense of dread keeps mounting. First they discover these footprints, and one of them becomes obsessed with them. And you notice, okay, there's something odd about those, and that dogs don't like this footprint. Then they find the underground cavern with lots of fossilized remains, but also some strangely intact specimen of the beings that left this very footprint. And again, the dogs go crazy, and all the other fossils have been killed by strange incisions in the skull. So you think, hang on. And then, of course, when they come to the camp of the little expeditionary force and find them all scattered in individual parts, then you really notice that something is going wrong. You mentioned that there is an atmosphere of dread, but honestly, the first question I might ask you as a neonate to Lovecraft over, is this scary? Is this even horror as a genre designation? Is that fitting for At the Mountains of Madness? Well, at first, it was definitely very scary. At first, I sort of thought, ooh, okay, what's going on there? And it was this nice little tingle of horror. And then, as it got more and more into the description of the great old ones and the civilization and how it perished, I started thinking, yeah, but come on, how could you discern all of that just from some ancient alien carvings in the walls that you even didn't have that much time to study? But then, towards the end, when I notice that the great old ones themselves have been the victims of something else, something more indescribable. I think things are being described as indescribable at several points. And even though I had grown a bit tired of it towards the end, right in the very last chapter he has a great image where Dyer and his assistant are running away from whatever killed the remaining great old ones. And the assistant chants the names of the stations of the underground back at home in New England because what is pursuing them is reminiscent of some sort of unstoppable force that chases after them through this narrow corridor like a subway train. And that was so evocative and so unusual and so horrifying that I definitely say this is horror. We'll come back to that description because there is a lot of things to say about that confrontation with the, we have to say the name, Shoggoth. Shoggoth? 
Shoggoth. Shock? Goth? Probably not. But one thing is quite clear, that Lovecraft is all about the unnameable, the indescribable. So this is actually one of the stories where he gives a lot more names to things. In order to placate all the Lovecraft nerds out there, Jonas kind of confused two things because he was, oh, no! ta- he was talking about the great old ones. The great old ones are indeed the kind of outer deities of Lovecraft's cosmos. But the things that we encounter in, at the Mountains of Madness are the elder things. It's, uh, it's a mistake that you might make if you don't know anything and about think, the mythos and about the uh, cosmology. And I think there we come to another problem that I had with Lovecraft. Because it's basically this huge info dump. And oftentimes I've praised authors for doing exposition really well. For example, uh, Fleming did it really well in Casino Royale. Lovecraft really doesn't do it well. Lovecraft basically says, and then we went into this big city and there were carvings in the walls and that is what they meant. And I think, okay, this seems a bit like an accessory book, you know, like one of these books you get for great series of sci-fi or fantasy where all the background is explained. And I had this image of Lovecraft sort of meeting me and sort of being all nerdy, but, you know, the kind of worst aspects of nerdiness sort of, oh, and this is really cool. And then these aliens, like, come to Earth and, like, they they build all these civilizations, like, under the sea as well, but also on land, and then they, like, make all these species. And it's like, you know, like, like maybe life started like that. Like, who knows, like... And I just found it a bit annoying. And I just thought, yeah, why don't you tell me an interesting story with all of that? Yeah, I I have to agree. At the Mountains of Madness is usually considered to be one of the big ones in Lovecraft's oeuvre, one of the important ones. But rereading it with maybe the eye of someone who knows, okay, I know what it's about and can pay more attention to the style or the actual plot, I had the same feeling. It felt a bit like a role-playing handbook, this kind of description of what happened thousands or millions of years ago. And yeah, there isn't that much mystery about it. Dyer and Danforth stumble across the city, and the description of the city I found really, really impressive and interesting. But as you mentioned, they go into one of the buildings, and then there is this story of this ancient civilization, basically in, in, in comic form, you might say, And apparently they can read it so perfectly that they know the entire history, culture, biology, and so forth of these Elder Ones. And that is, as you said, an info dump. What I think is also part of this is that this is maybe horrific in some way, but many people have called this rather science fiction than horror, because this is a kind of a... It's potato, it, potato. It know? deals with at least the description of an ancient civilization, an alien civilization. So lots of information, lots of details. And what I found even more egregious is that it is repeated all of the time. And yes. that's true for m- much of the information given in the text. I don't know how... Speaking of repetition, also style-wise, it's very poor. Uh, for example, he constantly mentions the paintings of Rurik. Oh my god! Oh, I and it looked like a painting by Rurik. I, I looked up Rurik because uh, he was an actual Russian painter. Yeah. He seems really, really tedious. He's this occultist, orientalist painter of weird landscapes. So it really fits with Lovecraft, in my opinion. And 
the same is true for other repetitions. I don't know how often you read the names of Leng, how <sighs> often the Necronomicon is mentioned. I, I didn't actually know that the Necronomicon is Necronomic Necronomicon. The Necronomicon. The Necronomicon is not a real book. So when it kept being brought up, I thought, oh, I'll look that up. So maybe I should read that as well for preparation for the episodes. And I felt rather embarrassed by realizing that it wasn't real. Then be glad that uh, von den unaussprechlichen Kult is not mentioned as well, because I'm sorry to tell you that's not real either. <laughs> it sounds like a thrilling read. But also, whenever he describes the latter art of the elder ones... Of the elder ones. Or he, elder things. Or elder things. Whenever he describes uh, whenever he describes the art of the elderly, he says that it's decadent. And I think, okay, yeah, you, you, you sort of implied that the civilization went downhill. So you don't have to bring up that exact same word. This feels a bit like something someone might bring to a creative writing class. And then you would say, okay, I don't know what your sort of headcanon is about this. And... You seem to be really into it. That's good for you. But if you want to do something with this, I'd give it a thorough edit. One piece of apology, maybe. It is basically an attempt on his side to summarize many of the things he has written before. So, for example, one of his most famous creations, Cthulhu, is aye, mentioned... Aye, sort of yeah, That's not how you say that, is it? No, I, I don't know whether you can say it without tentacles instead of a tongue. Those are your fingers that you put awkwardly in front of your mouth. So there are many connections to his oeuvre. And basically, this is perhaps the work that spawned the mythos. For those of you who don't know Lovecraft as much as I do, so the poor Jonas's out there. The <laughs> For those of you who are not experts. <laughs> the oeuvre of the master. <laughs> no, but seriously. I'm going to lose all my nerd credit with this, seriously. I kind of consider myself a nerd. I've described myself in terms of nerdiness in the past. But so far, whenever we've discussed genre literature, like Neuromancer, like Lovecraft, I've said... Yeah, it's not very good, is it? I, I I seem to turn from a nerd into a snob, which is not surprising because nerds are snobs, basically. So yes, indeed, and I think Lovecraft snobs are among the worst kind of snobs. Don't don't get me wrong. I really like the works by Lovecraft, but for those of you who don't know, there is something the mythos, which is basically the attempt of Lovecraft's followers. Yes, he had a kind of following fellow authors and fellow nerds, basically who were impressed by his writing, but they wanted to turn this into a mythology, into a kind of Tolkien-esque worldview, where the rules are clear, where the deities and monsters and so on have clear names and clear connections. Even though they're supposed to be indescribable. In exactly. And Lovecraft himself usually didn't go that far. He reused certain names, but always in a more literary fashion, which added to the atmosphere. But at the Mountains of Madness is perhaps one of those works where he himself fell into that trap of trying to describe too much. Too much of information for the reader, too much detail, too many points where you, yeah, where you can just say, okay, now I know what this is all about. But am I scared? Am I intrigued? Mm, not really. At least... For the most part of the middle. I mean, maybe I would have enjoyed this more if I knew about the myth. Maybe it would have given me more if I knew the Call of Cthulhu or all the other works that are referenced. Because maybe then it would have seemed really clever to me. So it just felt like I 
watched a mid-season episode of season five of some series that kind of looked intriguing, but I thought, do I want to go through all of that? Probably not. Even if you knew about it, it would be the episode that even the fans don't like because <laughs> the mystery has been building up and now there's the big reveal, basically. I mean, this is this is maybe taking too far. Many of the mythos facts were added after Lovecraft's death by other writers. So it's basically criticizing at the Mounds of Madness too much. But yeah, this feels like an episode of a TV show where too much is laid open, too much is revealed, and it takes away the atmosphere. It maybe satisfies you if you have been following so far and you think, oh, that's that's the connection to Cthulhu, or that's where uh, Yogg-Sogthoth comes into play. But really, if you have stayed in so far for the mystery, for the unnameable, the indescribable, then this aspect of this book or this novella wouldn't really satisfy you. Let's say it like this. If you really, really enjoyed the Star Wars prequels, where you learn that Boba Fett is actually a clone, where you learn that Jango Fett is actually a clone of someone else, where you learn... No, 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 no. He's the original model for the clones in the clone world. Get your fact. You're really not a nerd, are I, you? I, I officially give back my membership of nerddom. And if you really want to know how the Force works, if you really think that you need to know every little detail about every little character in your favorite things, then that's definitely for you. It's not for me. So in that respect, even I as a Lovecraft fan, if you want to call me that, I have to say that At the Mountains of Madness failed. I'm really upset by this, you know? I prepared to first sort of say, oh yeah, it was really intriguing, it was really scary, and then sort of hit you with the whammy of saying, don't read it because it's not that good, and I was really prepared for a proper fight, but now you agree with me. What's up with that? But, and now comes my whammy, I still love this in a certain way. And let me explain. As we mentioned, the style is repetitive, not in a good way. The plot is very little to begin with. The descriptions are sometimes kind of ridiculous. I mean, do you have any idea what these elder ones or elder things really look like? I do, because when he first described them, I just said, what? And Googled them and found exactly. several illustrations. Exactly. And you see these illustrations and think, huh. Still... There is something about At the Mountains of Madness which I find really exciting. And on the one hand, I think we kind of gave Lovecraft's style a bad name. But I think one... Because it is bad. It is certainly not a good style. It is, after all, don't forget that, pulp fiction. But I really like the description of the city. I He has problems describing other things. The Elder Things... I have no idea what they look like. They kind of look like barrels with wings and tentacles. Someone said they look like winged pineapples, which I think is a good description. But I really like the description of this this dark city because there, he, I think he finds the right balance between giving lots of detail and then not really giving you enough detail. So you still have this kind of dreamlike quality, this undescribable nature. What I really like is... The worldview. I mean, it is presented in such a straightforward fashion that there is not much sense of mystery left. But Jonas mentioned it. 
life on earth was created by the elder ones. And it's mentioned in the very beginning. I was surprised that in the very beginning, Dyer says something like, oh yeah, um, these strange uh, creatures we've found, they remind us of the elder things in the Necronomicon because everyone has fucking read the Necronomicon. That was one of the strangest things that everyone has read the most unholy occult book in the world. Everyone. You just said the elder ones, don't you mean the elder things? I just... I just realized something. Like, this is all about the search for the elder things. Maybe that was part of J.K. Rowling's inspiration for the elder wand. Not the elder ones, but the elder wand. Okay, all of a sudden, I love this book. <laughs> Isn't elder also kind of... Yeah, it's, it's a kind of tree. Yeah. Yeah, but why choose elder? Why not maple, oak, birch? I'll get us some more wine. So... In the end, they meet one of the Shoggoths, this indescribable biomass of cells that... Basically the blob. Yes. And I think the description of that, however grandiose or cheesy it might be, still affects one. You mentioned that scene where Danforth keeps muttering the names of the Boston underground. And on the one hand, as you mentioned, it's because that thing that Dyer can't describe reminds them of a subway train. On the other hand, obviously, muttering things like that that remind you of home, that gives you some sort of safety. But you can't have that here with something that is so alien. But I read somewhere online that there is a third interpretation. If this thing, the Shoggoth, is like a subway train, then it is something that is reminiscent of something utterly mundane, something utterly human. And if we think about the whole cosmology, so by the way, yeah, Life on Earth was created by these elder things. The Shoggoth is basically us. The Shoggoth is our great-great-great-great-grandfather because we are not much more than a kind of putrescent mass of bioenergy that will decay at some point. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. Now, I may have been influenced too much by uh, Michel Houellebecq, the French enfant terrible of literature. I ain't no Ulbeck girl. <laughs> that is a good one, you have to admit. That is a good one. I won't cut that out. <laughs> He's written a really good, I would say, monography on Lovecraft. He really likes Lovecraft, which tells you a lot more about Will Beck than it tells you about Lovecraft, I think. And he has this thesis that Lovecraft is basically not a horror author or science fiction author or fantasy author. He's a modernist materialist. He thinks that modern life brings so many insights into what the world is really like that you can't help but shudder. I mean, Dyer starts his account here by saying, oh, scientists tell us something about the world, but they should better stop. And The Call of Cthulhu starts off with that we're glad that we live in an island of ignorance because if we know more about the world, we would go mad. And that might be connected to these elder ones or great old ones or whatever, but it might also be connected to a kind of nihilist view that human life, well, in the grand scale of things, it's not worth that much. And that is, I have to agree with, with Will Beck, that is the fascinating thing about Lovecraft. That's why so many horrible people are attracted to his work. Let's be honest. Will Beck? <laughs> On the one hand, for example. But... That is also quite fascinating that you take something like a horror pulp fiction tale and you add this very bleak worldview. And I don't want to come off as a nihilist, but 
yeah, maybe I am. But yeah, that's the thing that I always found fascinating in Lovecraft, however clumsy his style may be at times. I have to agree, actually, that I love this description of the Shoggoth like a subway train so much because it is so modern. Because it is a comparison that someone in the early 19th century could never have made. Um, Mary Shelley couldn't have written that. No, because not. Because this is a modern tale, and I would have wished for more of that. And actually, I had a really weird moment with that scene in particular. I read that part of the book on a bus, and there was a guy on the bus who was maybe homeless, maybe just in some sort of distress, but obviously severely disheveled, obviously not in full possession of his senses. And he kept repeating the stops that the bus was going to take as I read that part of the book. And then I suddenly thought, well, maybe he has glimpsed some sort of existential horror as well. Not because he went to the Antarctic and saw the alien slave race of the Shoggoths, but because you can see these existential dreads just around the corner. That was a little glimpse of the book that really intrigued me, but there's not much else in it that I liked so much. And I think I won't explore Lovecraft much further. I've given him a shot. Don't really think it worked for me. And my recommendation would be don't bother with it. There's certain things that we've discussed in the podcast that are really great discoveries for me. But H.P. Lovecraft, not so much. I can understand, actually, and I still have to recommend Lovecraft. The thing is, there's a lot of things to get over with his works. We discussed the style, which is sometimes a problem. We discussed his tendency to become very verbose. I mean, it's almost a cliche that he uses these words like Cyclopean and Eldritch and so on. So that is something. And uh, did we mention Rurik? Because we should mention Rurik at least three more times. Have you heard about the painter Rurik? I mean, his paintings really remind me of the Plateau of Leng. Yes, you know. Uh, uh, have you talked about the Necronomicon? Oh, uh, yeah. actually, actually, what we haven't talked about as well is his kind of troubling political stances. You've already said that he's kind of a nihilist who hates everyone, but he hates minorities especially, you could say. And while that is not very present in the Mountains of Madness, because... Simply because it takes place in the Antarctic. There are no people is, there. Everything is white, including all the people. And, by the way, the giant blind penguins. That's a detail I love. That is, that is really a detail I love, because it's simultaneously ridiculous and still a bit scary. Yeah, because it, because it was so ridiculous, I actually literally laughed out loud when I read that part where they hear... This horrible sound, the squawk of a penguin. Well done, well done, HP, you've made me laugh. But his sort of troubling views of the world are present in the Mountains of Madness insofar as he actually has empathy for the master race of aliens. They actually say, ah, these old ones, these elder things, they were men. They were scientists like us. Oh, but, you know, the slaves, the shoggoth, these uncivilized creatures they rose up and that was a disaster yeah they were bred just to perform certain tasks and then they tried to free themselves and were violently crushed that's something that i can sympathize with sorry if you ever want to hate lovecraft read the horror at red hook which is basically a description of how he felt at new york and let me tell you he didn't feel too much at home with all those nasty, nasty, mixed-race foreigners. So, yeah, even in a work like this, where it's 
just some people, giant penguins and Shoggoths, you still get a view into the troubled socio-political mind of Howard Phillips Lovecraft. But still, if you can get over that, I think H.P. Lovecraft is at least worth checking out on the one hand because he is such a unique author, has such a unique perspective, and because he's incredibly influential. We mentioned Will Beck, we mentioned the following he had, this description of the mythos which spawned many further works and films and role-playing games and so on. And if you consider him as part of the modernist movement, a strange outlier of the modernist movement, I think he's in, in good company with people like Eliot, who have the same distaste for modern life, but in a more intellectual fashion. So I think Lovecraft, check it out. If you don't like it, perfectly understandable. But there is something to discover there. But, as usual... Maybe there are certain aspects of At the Mountains of Madness which make us recommend other, better works. So, Jonas, if you think Lovecraft is not worth checking out, what is worth checking out? Well, basically, there's a film that I would like to recommend. Not surprising. This is a really great little film. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It's called Prometheus. And it also has this idea that aliens created the life on Earth. Oh, no, of course, no. Wait, no, no, we don't talk about Prometheus. Okay, okay. No, actually, I don't really feel qualified to make a recommendation because I don't know my way around horror. But if you want to explore that with me, I can tell you what I'm going to look at next. Lovecraft was sort of a dead end for me, so I will go backwards and forwards, like you do when you're in a dead end. So I will go backwards to an obvious inspiration for Lovecraft, one that he mentioned several times, Edgar Allan Poe. A great classic, of course, a safer option maybe, great, in inverted commas, horror literature. But especially the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym is the kind of book that The Mountains of Madness is a kind of sequel to, but not really, but kind of, yes. Tekeli Lee. Whatever. But also I will go forwards uh, in a work that was probably influenced by the Mountains of Madness. Don't know if it really was. I'll have to take a look at it to be sure. And that is The Thing by John Carpenter. A remake? <laughs> Christian seems very excited about me watching The Thing. So No, I no, no. I just wanted to recommend that as well. So. No, seriously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's okay. That's okay. I have another recommendation. Yeah. Well, well, you see, I haven't seen the film, but I recently listened to a, a podcast on it. And it sounds really interesting. You know, people go to an Arctic region, people sort of do science there, and then strange things happen because there's an extraterrestrial being there. But it has an added element of suspense that really intrigues me because that extraterrestrial being is able to inhabit people and control them. So you don't know, are the people who are with you actually still themselves or are they the thing? And that sounds like it could really, really fuck you up psychologically. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, since Jonas stole my recommendation... Sorry! Basically, I could recommend a whole array of other Lovecraft works that are maybe more to your taste. And I even wrote a primer on that. So maybe oh. that's something I, I'll actually put on the yeah, website. Let's put that on the website. Um, it's a great primer. I got it two years ago when you wrote it and ignored it so far, so... If you really find something in that very nihilistic worldview of Lovecraft, and if you maybe want to read that in a more literary context, I would recommend the works of Thomas Ligotti. That is a controversial recommendation, because Ligotti is maybe like Lovecraft, but without the sense of humor. 
Wow, there were like two places in Lovecraft where I even chuckled, so... Hey, read Herbert West Reanimator and then tell me again that Lovecraft doesn't have a sense of humor. But Ligotti, he even wrote a non-fiction book about uh, anti-natalism, why the human race would be better off dying out. Ah, so... oh, seriously, no, 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 no. But... Usually I respect Christian's opinions and I think he's very knowledgeable. Whilst I'm patching up th things in my knowledge and little gaps that I don't know yet. But no, in this case, go away with your stupid antinatalism. Been there, done that when I was a teenager. No, 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 no. I'm not going to recommend that because fuck that. Seriously, you're right. Fuck that. But Ligotti writes horror fiction that is influenced by Lovecraft, is influenced by Poe, and influenced by more mainstream horror authors like Stephen King. And it's really... Quite interesting. It's really fascinating. It's not always scary, but it stays with you. It's disquieting. So if you like Lovecraft's worldview, well, maybe you have a problem, but <laughs> still, in Ligotti's fiction, I think that is brought across in a poetic and interesting way. So Thomas Ligotti's short fiction, not his non-fiction. So that was our take on H.P. Lovecraft, but what is your take? You can write us an email at... Yeah, yeah, CthulhuFathagen at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Outside of a Dog. You can go to our website, outsideofadogcast.com, where you can find links to subscribe to us on iTunes, which we would really appreciate. Whilst you're already at iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review that says, fuck you, or something else. Since you're not into Lovecraft, Jonas, well, what's it for next week? I thought we'd branch out a bit more. We've read a lot of English literature, American literature, one stereotypically dirty French book. But we are German, in Germany. Why don't we read a German book for a change? Sounds interesting. Which one? Next episode, we're going to read something by a contemporary of Lovecraft, who also wrote kind of disquieting, strange tales. The Trial by Franz Kafka. Will it have tentacles? Uh, no, but it has a very clever satire on totalitarian systems before the fact. So no tentacles? No, but bureaucracy. A lot of bureaucracy. That's even scarier. <laughs> you need to fill out a form. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. Yeah, I can't think of a better joke right now, so let's... I also can't think of a better joke. Careless. <laughs> this is still not a James Bond podcast. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs>